Glad to have you guys all here again. Um, and welcome to everyone at home. I thought today uh, just to focus in on a couple of the items that, that we are encountering in the reading. Like last time we we were uh, we went all over the uh, all over the chapter that was about the transfiguration. And uh, and what's interesting about this book, it kind of does that, right? It sort of jumps around a little bit, it seems a little disorienting, but it's all connected. We're not really looking at the church or the faith in sort of linear time as much as we are looking in terms of um, more of the themes and the message, uh, the, the, the greater teaching that's, that's behind it. So, the chapter on transfiguration is really just trying to highlight the epiphanies, the revelations of God, where God appears and reveals himself to human beings uh, as much as they can handle, because after all, he's God and we are mortal. And he, he reveals himself in this way so that the people will believe in him. Why? Because after the fall of Adam and Eve, again, to recap that, you know, we've really lost, um, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we kind of, our spiritual vision became blunted. Our spiritual vision, our ability to see, to perceive things, to see the spiritual world, to understand ourselves even, to even see ourselves, who we are as human beings, we become blind to all that. We've lost that spiritual vision. And so God knowing this reveals himself in ways that we can comprehend, we can understand, and that we can experience. And we, we, those were the epiphanies that, that you saw that we talked about. Theophanies are revelations of God. So the burning bush and the cloud of fire or the... Um, the transfiguration of Christ, Elijah, all those beautiful, amazing stories. So what I wanted to do is have you turn the page. Let me find it. The page, uh, it's not numbered, but it would be technically page 66. So if you are 64 and go over a couple pages, there is a copy here uh, of the creed. Everybody got that, the creed? So you know the creed is what you will be, uh, what we say every Sunday in church. The word creed is from the Latin credo, credo, which means uh, I believe, or um, my, my faith, get the word credibility, you know, it's like, it's a, um, it's a, or a creedal statement. So uh, in Greek, originally it was just hyphenated as pistevo, which means I believe, or a statement of faith, a statement of belief. And I wanted to begin looking at this because this is essentially the, a very important 
foundational text for our faith. Everything that we believe, uh, the basic fundamental teachings of our faith are contained in this creed. So you're gonna become more and more familiar with it. We haven't talked about it up to this point, but I think this is a good point now in our class to kind of begin looking at it. And the creed itself was composed by the church for the church. Why? Because the creed was a, it has a sort of defensive posture. Okay. Remember in the first class, we said that no one can know God. No one can describe him. He's indescribable. He's uh, infinite. We cannot know his essence. We can only know him through his energies. Uh, as the early church now is growing, it is confronting, it is, be, it is being confronted by other religions, by other beliefs, and within itself, also those who are leading people astray with false teachings that, that are different than what was revealed by the apostles. Remember I said that at Pentecost, the fullness of the faith was revealed to the apostles. They were given the fullness of the truth. Nothing was held back by God. It was a complete outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So everything that the church needed to know and, just, and God wanted it to know was given to the apostles. And they in turn taught it to others. That's a really important point because if we say that God sort of revealed something and then later on he kept revealing things, then that means that the apostles were sort of deficient, right? That somehow they weren't worthy of the whole truth of God. And so what happens is because the fullness of the faith was revealed to the apostles, anyone who came into the church and tried to teach new things that were different than what the apostles had taught, it was immediately recognized as a heretic and who was influenced by evil, by demonic teachings that can happen uh, to anyone who thinks that somehow, you know, um, the Holy Spirit's talking to them and they're, they're telling them things and they're going to restore Christianity and they're going to start a new church and oh, you know, these Orthodox got it wrong, the Catholics got it wrong, the Protestants got it wrong. I'm the guy who's gonna set it all straight and I'm gonna start this church. That's what happens. We still see that today. And we call them cults, we call them whatever we want. And you see the danger of that. And that's clearly a demonic influence that is driving that. So that's why the creed uh, comes to be. Because during these early centuries, you have this kind of uh, problem with individuals who begin to teach things that are contrary or different than what the apostles taught. So the church uh, gathers, first gathers in the year 325, 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea is a, is a small city in what's modern day Turkey now. 
And they, these three, uh, hundreds of bishops come and they come all over the Christian world and they come and they serve the liturgy together and they pray to the Holy Spirit and they ask for guidance and to write this, this creed. Um, and what's interesting also is that it developed over a course of a year. It wasn't like it just a one-time thing. There was a following, also another council thereafter that added other things. What's the first thing that needs to be said in the creed is in the first sentence. And again, remember, this is a defensive posture. It is a defensive posture against the heretics and it's a sort of affirming post posture and statement to the believers. This is what we believe. Nothing else. This is what we believe. Do not let anyone lead you astray. So, originally it was actually we believe. It wasn't I believe. Somehow that change happened, I'm not sure why. Originally the, the creed says we believe. So we believe or I believe in one God. Now, why do you think the first sentence is that? What do you think is going on at the time? What are Christians being accused of uh, that they have to say this? Well, uh, not to say Christ is one God, God is one God, God is one God, different gods. Right. Is used polytheism. Polytheism. Or to say, oh, you guys are believing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You must be believing in a trinity, three, three gods. See? So, this, so the church has to say, no. We believe in one God. I believe in one God. Okay? The Father Almighty. Now, every single one of these words is important. Every single one. There's nothing superfluous here. The Father Almighty. So he's a father and he's almighty, all powerful. Maker, the creator of heaven and earth. And by the way, heaven here means um, not like the skies, not even only like what we might imagine as paradise, but the entire spiritual realm. Whatever that is, we don't know. Um, and earth. And then very importantly, and of all things. So by things we mean, well, matter, animals, plants, etc. that are visible, that we see on earth. Remember the days of creation that we studied? And invisible. The angels, the spiritual realm. Okay? And in one Lord Jesus Christ, one Lord is the only Lord. Um, notice, pay attention to how many times in the creed you hear the word one. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, Light of light, true God of true God. Begotten, not made, not created. Now, why? Why do you think they had to put that? Anybody know? 
And he wasn't created. He wasn't like, you know, created by God, like my son. Uh, anybody want to take a stab at it? Is that because, you know, again, he's not separate. He's, you know, he wasn't created as a separate entity. Right. And he's just always been there. He's always been. Right. Eternally begotten. There's never a time that the son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, did not exist. There was never a time he did not exist. This is what the church teaches. Now, this particular article, this particular sentence is specifically responding and defending against one particular heresy, which was called Arianism, which was started by a monk, a very prayerful, spiritual person who began teaching this. And his name was Arius. I think he was a priest, actually. So he's a priest monk. So he started teaching that Christ was sort of created. He was, you know, there was a time when he didn't exist. This started spreading like wildfire, this teaching in the early church. And it was completely contradicting to what Christ himself said, to what the apostles taught. But you see, this is what happens with heresy. It can just spread like wildfire. So specifically, that's put in the creed to... Uh, let people know that, no, this is what the church has always believed, and we're going to put that in the creed. Okay, so begotten, not made of one essence with the Father. There's that word essence. Remember, we talked about essence and energies. By whom all things were made. That means that through Jesus Christ, through the Son of God, the Logos, Everything was made that was made. And this is directly from the Gospel of John. Where he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning, and all things were made through him. And without him was nothing made that was made. This is John himself saying this, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. Remember we talked about the incarnation. And was incarnate. There's that word. Took flesh. That's a very important word. Because if you did not say he was incarnate, you could have said, you know, he just sort of just addressed like these other prophets that just kind of show up and start teaching stuff, right? But no, it's very important to point out that he is incarnate, that this God... Our God, who created the heavens and the earth, he took flesh. How? Of the Virgin Mary and of the Holy Spirit and became man. He became a human being. And I'll stop there because that's as far as we've gotten in our class. Um, but you see how everything we've learned so far is reflected right here in the opening passages of the creed. Questions on this so far? Uh, our conversations with people of other backgrounds, particularly non-orthodoxy, we've come to realize that the Council of Nicaea is a bit of a conflict. A conflict? Well, um, 
question is that there's some uh, opinions and, and uh, thoughts out there about the Council of Nicaea and how that came about and the role of Constantine, the emperor, who, by the way, is our patron saint of our parish. Um, you know, what was going on there? And that's a big topic. I, I think we could say that this, the church always met in council. Uh, in fact, the church always had a time where it would come um, to come together. The very first council that you can read about is actually in the Bible, in the book of Acts, where the, the apostles come together, the 12, and maybe even some of those that were called among the 70, and they have an issue to discuss, and that has to do with um, some of the Jewish practices that were being uh, retained by some of the early Christians, and whether the non-Jews, the Gentiles, Greeks, you know, Syrians, Persians, Arabs, whoever was there, uh, should also participate and do those same Jewish practices and. And the council met, they prayed, and they, and, and they asked the Holy Spirit to give them guidance, and they essentially uh, made a common statement, discussed and made a common statement. They all agreed, and they were all in agreement. That's that conciliar nature. And they said, no, they don't. The Gentiles are Gentiles. They do not have to do these purification rites, circumcision, all these other things. Uh, but if the Jews who are becoming Christians want to continue, that's fine as well. Now, what, what's interesting, it says that in, in that passage, it says, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. It uses that phrase, you see. So clearly there was a real unity among these apostles. They talked. They may have debated a little bit, but it was all in a spirit of love and unity and holiness and what, and the mind of the church, the mind of the apostles, the mind of Christ that the apostles had. Remember, they are full of the Holy Spirit, okay, that guides them. They're not coming up with their own ideas. The Holy Christ says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will teach you everything. So the, the apostles have are the vessels of the truth as given to them by the Holy Spirit, not made up by themselves, and as given to them by Christ. So this mind of the church, this teaching of the church, this faith of the church is retained in the apostles who teach it to their disciples, those who would come after them. And we'll talk about the early church fathers and, and the whole succession, apostolic succession. And they pass on this faith 
And this is what we mean by the holy tradition. They pass on the holy tradition over the centuries. And now in the third century or fourth century, already these heresies are bubbling up. So that same conciliar united spirit comes together, uh, bishops come together in that same unity and love and to say, this is right, this is wrong, this is orthodox and our faith, this is false. Um, now, what's, what's Constantine's role in all this? Well, Constantine is an emperor, he's a politician, but he's also come to faith. He has an experience on the battlefield where he sees, uh, he, he sees in the middle of the battle or before the battle, I forget the whole story, in a dream, a vision of a cross in the sky. And the vision, in the vision, he hears a voice that tells him, with this sign, you will conquer. So what he does is he, he recognizes the sign. This is the sign of the crucified one of Christ, of the Christians. But he's so moved by this vision that he take that he, the, the next morning he, before the battle begins, he orders that all the soldiers paint a cross on their helmets and on their shields. And he's victorious in this war. And that's the beginning of his sort of conversion. He eventually is baptized uh, a short time before his death. So he sort of held off. Um, by this time, Christianity has also been legalized, and um, he, as a good politician, wants to keep the peace, wants to keep his kingdom at peace. And Arius is causing a lot of division in the church. And I think that's his role is to, Constantine's role here is to call the, call the um, council, arrange for it at his expense, Kingdom, the uh, Roman Empire is expensive. It's not cheap, right? All these people start traveling from, you know, hundreds of miles away to come to Nicaea, um, and he essentially provides this platform for them. But they, the, this is what the church did, anyways. Like I said, the church is conciliar. They come together to to affirm the teachings of the. And that's what occurred. Um, and they began producing the creed. Does that answer your question, Kieran? Or am I kind of talking about something different for you? No, and that's a big topic. Yeah, it's a big topic. So um, anyone else? Any other questions on the creed by any chance? If I can just add to that, uh, I've heard the kind of allegations that you know, Constantine Church, but he didn't really participate in the actual discussions. He let that for the bishops. Right. Like from my understanding, he initially thought the Arians were coming out ahead. Yes. So he was kind of just whichever they decide, and it was kind of reverse that it happened. So he didn't really uh, influence the council decisions. Yes. It's interesting. Yeah, and and also I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true, that Constantine was a bit. Um, in, not in favor, but he was also starting to be influenced by the heresy of Arianism, and then he rejects it. And I believe his son becomes an Arian. Uh, I might be wrong with that, but I, I thought I read that. So why is that important? Well, again, if we believe that Christ was a created being, then he's not God. Simple as that. 
If there's a time that Christ did not exist, then he's not God. And if he's not God, then he can't save us. So you see, this is very important to get this right. Um, and so the, the church produced this creedal statement uh, and wrote it down uh, so that collectively everyone that's of the faith can look at something and say, this is what we believe. <clears throat> as a way to protect the church and protect faith from heretics. Okay, other questions? I can kind of see how like, although wrong as it is, I can see how it's easier to think about Christ being a created being if you've never heard of Christianity before. You're only used uh -huh. to like a bunch of different gods doing a bunch of different things that, oh, okay, just like Zeus came from the I think, or mm. the, I forget. You can just kind of think of it like that, but mm. it's something completely different. You know, it's way more complex. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good point, right? Because what is the context of the of that time, the pagan world? Like you said, people believe in multiple gods, and like one god was born from another god, or you know, these two gods got together and they produced that god. That's what the Romans believe. Course, the first thing is, oh, we believe in one God, and uh, the Son of God is begotten, He's not created, but He's eternally begotten. One way that the church says it in one of the hymns, we say that Christ was born of the Father without a mother, and born of a mother without a father, born of the father without a mother and born of a mother without a father. That's how one of the hymns puts it. Yeah, I mean, you have a question? What does that mean? <laughs> um, well, you were born from your mom and dad, okay? And so was everyone else here. But Jesus was not born the same way. He was never born. He came forward. He was begotten of the Father. So it's like uh, there was never a time that Jesus didn't exist. He's always existed with the Father. In a way, we don't really know because that would happen outside of our understanding in heaven. Okay? Um, and then when he was born on earth as the baby Jesus, uh, he was born from the Virgin Mary only. And uh, that's how God, that's how he desired to be born from the Virgin Mary. Make sense? That's his mother. Okay. So uh, let's change gears. Any other questions? All right. I'm going to be back in the book now. We're going to go to page 97. And uh, chapter 8 starts to discuss um, this idea of a covenant. What's a covenant? How would you, what's it, what would you define what a covenant is? Anybody? Like an agreement. Agreement, okay. Huh? A contract. So in a covenant, um, how many parties are there? Usually two. Uh, and what's the purpose of it? 
promises. Enforce promises, okay? Okay? And um, what happens if you, if one party breaks the covenant or, you know, doesn't hold up their end of the deal? <laughs> you guys know Dan's an attorney. <laughs> the non, the non what? The non-breaching party, the innocent party can go forward. The non-breaching party, the innocent party can uh, seek damages. So that's, yeah, that's how it's structured, right? Our, our legal world and contracts. Well, what's interesting is in the, the Holy Bible reveals that God makes a covenant with human beings as well. And he makes it beginning in the Old Testament. We talk, the book talks about that a little bit. You know, the covenant that he made originally with Adam and Eve that they violated and then had consequences. Uh, he makes another covenant with Abraham. Uh, because he found him, you know, to be of faith and that his descendants would uh, cover the earth, right? Then he makes a covenant with Noah, who was the righteous one. And what is the purpose of all, all this? It's eventually he makes a, a kind of a covenant or agreement with Moses and the Israelites. A, a distinct ethnic people, the Israelites, the Jews. He makes a covenant with them. He reveals himself to them. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here are my rules. If you, if, that's the word, if you follow these rules, these, my words, my ways, then you will be blessed and you will uh, attain righteousness. And you will be my favorite ones and under my protection. But if you do not, then I will withdraw from you and you will suffer. And so the Old Testament, as a kind of a, I'm kind of, you know, paraphrasing here, broad strokes, is kind of a story of this covenant, of this relationship between the Jews and God, and how they experienced the most amazing, amazing revelations and encounters with God, tremendous miracles that are described and how so many of them were so full of faith and devotion to God and how so many of them, despite seeing all these amazing miracles, betrayed God, turned their backs on him. And that's what you see in the story of Exodus, uh, in the book of Exodus, the story of Moses, you know, he leads them out of Pharaoh's uh, Egypt and chapter nine, chapter eight begins to talk about that, right? Um, so I wanted to go through that a little bit together because I think it's very important um, for the time we have tonight. So uh, on page 98, uh, we, we see a little bit how uh, God, is preparing the Israelites to have an encounter with him. He calls Moses up upon a mountain, okay, Mount Sinai. And by the way, on Mount Sinai today, there's a very famous monastery of St. Catherine, 
And at that monastery, the tradition is there is a large tree, a large bush. And uh, the, the belief is that this is the burning bush. It's still there. And you can still see it at the monasteries at uh, St. Catherine's. Um, no one knows how old this bush is. Yeah. As a plant person. Yeah, you're a plant guy. What kind of bush it is? I don't. Okay. Uh, Wikipedia might know. <laughs> no, I don't know. But yeah, it's it's like not like trying to date this bush, and it's like so ancient. Uh, it's very fascinating. Um, so God calls Moses and he tells them what to do. He says, bring the people near, but no one is allowed on the mountain except for you. They have to come up to a certain point. And so this, you read this all in the book of Exodus. Um, and so there's barriers, there's space where the people can gather, those who want to enter into this covenant with God, who believe in him and, uh, and want to know him and then where Moses can go. So the book points out how that same sort of layout is exactly what we follow in our churches, in the Orthodox churches. And the book here describes that. So the, the ulam was the, the camp where the people were gathered. That corresponds to the narthex, when you first entered to the church. It's a, it's a space for where anyone can be. Then beyond that was the Hekla, hekl, and that's the nave. And he says, this is where the people heard the thunder of God. So it's, it's further, it's another step in, uh, entering into closer and closer to the mountain, to the presence of God, right? So this is where they heard the thunder and where they heard the word of God. And that's what happens in the liturgy, right? This is where all the people are gathered during the liturgy in the nave. Uh, and you hear the word of God. You hear the gospel. You hear the liturgy. You hear the sermon. Then there was a final space called the Dabra or the sanctuary. And this is the most holy of holies where only Moses was allowed to enter and be, and that corresponds to the holy altar. And by, by uh, according to the church's uh, practice and ancient practice, no one's allowed on the altar except for the priest um, because no one has any work to do in there except for the priest. Uh, and so this is pretty strict, this is pretty important. No one's supposed to step into the altar except for the priest. And unless you have a blessing to enter from the priest for some purpose, uh, because it is the Holy of Holies. It is where God is present on the Holy Altar. And I'll describe more of that in another time. But I just wanted to show you how our faith, our church, and the way it's laid out is exactly the same as the ancient Jewish temple and, and it's all based on this particular experience and encounter with God. Okay, questions?
Any question? I just saw chat. Uh, okay, <laughs> thanks, Justin. According to Google, the bush at St. Catherine's is the Rubus Sanctus bramble, endemic to the Sinai Peninsula. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Rubus Sanctus. Sanctus, of course, Latin for holy. Uh, Rubus, I'm not sure what that means, but maybe it sounds like it was like red, like red. Okay, it's a kind of a bramble. All right, um, questions so far? So then you know this, what happens in the story. Moses goes up onto the mountain and he is given, he has an encounter with God. Can you imagine what this must have been like? And how, imagine how holy Moses is. How righteous, how holy. He's accounted worthy of this. So we're given the Ten Commandments. Um, it is I, the Lord your God, who led you out of Egypt. You shall have no other God but me. The first commandment. <clears throat> you shall not bow before any images or serve them. You shall not make idols. Sometimes people take that verse and say, well, you're Orthodox and you're icons. You're violating the second commandment. We'll talk about that. You shall not use the name of God in vain, OMG, right? It's all over the place. That's using the name of God in vain. Observe this day, observe the day of the Sabbath to sanctify it. Now, Sabbath is a Hebrew word, Shabbat, which means seven, uh, which is corresponds to Saturday. Okay. And the Saturday was holy for the Jews. You shall work for six days, but the seventh day you shall consecrate to God. Honor your father and mother, and you shall have a long life. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. And you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. Think about these commandments. Why do you think God gave these specific commandments? Applies to everybody. <laughs> it applies to everybody. What else? Tough to follow to a T. Huh? Tough to follow to a T. Tough to follow to a T. You know, kind of like the creed, right? It's a, the creed, like I said, is sort of a defensive part telling people what to believe. And this is telling people what not to do. It's again in this, it's a kind of a negative. It's saying like, because clearly this is what everyone was doing. They were believing in multiple gods. They were lying. They were killing. They were coveting each other's goods. They were taking the God's name in vain. They were not honoring their father and mother. They were stealing on and on and on. So these people were in pretty bad shape. They were in pretty bad shape spiritually. And God needs to correct them. He has entered, he wants to enter into a covenant with them. He's saying, 
I see you, you guys are a mess. And you reflect not only the Jewish race, but you are humanity. You're no different than the Egyptians, the Persians, the Assyrians, whoever was living at the time. Uh, the, the, the idea of morality and ethics and all these things, you know, it was like a jungle. Uh, and God is saying, I'm revealing myself to you, your God, the God. And this is what I expect from you. If you want to enter into the covenant with me. And if you do that, then I will reward you with the promised land. He appeals to their carnal nature at first because they are a nomadic people. They are hunted. They are enslaved. He's saying, I will free you. I will give you your own land and your own kingdom. See, he can't talk to them yet about the heavenly kingdom. He's got to talk to them about the things that matter right now. And that's shelter, food, a place to be, freedom, their own land. See? But he, but he says, how can I give you those things if the way you're acting right now? And so this is why Moses is the prophet amongst the other prophets. So this is what they were doing. And he tells them, the covenant is that I will be your God. You will be my people. But you need to be purified. You need to be cleansed. And you need to live a righteous life. So what happens next? Do you guys remember the story? So he comes and gives them these commandments. <laughs> he goes back up the mountain again. Then what happens? What do the people do? <laughs> they make a golden calf. Why? Why? Why did they do that? Oh, it wasn't because it's like they're getting a bit restless, and Aaron was just like, "Go ahead, man." Thank right. God Moses. <laughs> so, if you read the chapter, basically, Moses, uh, I think it's his brother, right? Yeah. Aaron, he puts him in charge. He says, "Watch over the people." So there's. And by the way, if you're not clear about the story, I can give a little bit more context. These are the Israelites. At this point, they've left Egypt. They've been freed by Moses. They were under Egypt's rule as slaves to build the pyramids, to build all those things, right? And Moses frees them. Now they're wandering in the desert. And uh, he's trying to lead them to this place that they will live, the promised land. Um, but, but again, they're not ready. He needs to teach them. And so God calls them to this place on Sinai to give them the law, the commandments, uh, and, you know, they're tired, they're complaining. You brought us out into the desert. At least when we were in Egypt, we had homes, we had food. What do you bring us out here for? They're complaining to him. You could read this all in the Old Testament. And so he prays and God sends down food from heaven for them, manna, which was like these little flakes that suddenly began falling everywhere. That was almost like a bread. And then they complained some more. They said, is this how we're supposed to survive on just this, this bread you're giving us? Imagine now, it's a miracle that's come down from heaven. They're not saying so. He says, we want meat. <laughs> Where's the beef? <laughs> and so God rains down some kind of miraculous way, like birds from the air begin dropping and so that they can eat meat. 
This is all in the Old Testament. Amazing stories, but it shows you how wishy-washy, how fickle the people are. Of course, we're the same way, right? We're the same way. That's the point here. Um, and so finally, they come to this place to be given the law. So now they hear the thunder. And when Moses comes down, they can't even look at his face. It's shining so brightly. Remember the light, transfiguration? They can't even look on his face. And so they have to put a veil over his face in order to be in his presence. And he gives them the commandments. And then he goes up again. And then when he comes back, he sees what we were just describing. Uh, we don't know how long he's gone. Maybe that's mentioned in the Bible. I'm not sure. But it just says that the people began to be restless. They're saying, where's Moses? He's gone up there. He's not coming back. He's abandoned us. Let us make a God for ourselves. Let us return to what we used to believe. So they make a bowl. Everyone has gold with them, right? Uh, somehow they have gold, their, their belongings. They begin to melt it. And they begin to build this uh, formed this bull like a calf and it's the it's the actually a representation of the egyptian god apis apis which was the god of fertility i believe very interesting and so they are begin worshiping now the calf praying to it to be to save them to give them whatever they are asking for so moses now comes down the mountain and he sees this and he is full of rage holy anger because he cannot believe what is the people are doing and he throws down the commandments and they shatter and you read the rest of the chapter of what happens after that this is a really important uh, episode and story because it teaches us so much about our own human nature that we could be like the Israelites. We can make our own idols. We can believe in other things and put our trust and our faith and our hope in other things and not in God. You know, the book mentions what are, what are those idols? What are some of the idols? You guys want to take a stab at that? What are some of the things that people so much faith and trust in money big money is a big one right if i have money then i'm going to be secure really what else what else do people put their trust in other than god worldly leaders worldly leaders politicians politics yep yeah, huh? and how does that turn out? <laughs> well, it's good and bad, I suppose. Recently, attention's a big one. Attention, that's a good point. How so? How's attention? Like, on social media particularly, and like, people seeing other people have like millions of followers and like all this uh, mm. political influence. But like, then wanting it for themselves and then doing anything to get that attention. And if they don't get it, they mm. just feel like their whole life is in the media. They don't exist. 
They don't exist. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So attention as an idol, that I have to have it, otherwise I don't exist. I have to be seen. Yeah. I have to be seen. It's a good one. Yeah. So clearly, we have the propensity in us still, as human beings, to go the wrong way and take our eye off God. Uh, and this can happen to anybody. What makes this so terrible is that this happened to a people that literally encountered the living God. They saw the miracles he was performing. He took them out of Egypt. You know the story of Moses and the plagues and everything that Moses did for the people to free them. They saw all these miracles, and yet they still turned their back on God. It's really frightening, isn't it? It's really like shocking that this can happen, but it does. And it's a warning to all of us, especially us, all of you who are becoming Orthodox. It's a warning to be careful, to hold on and keep your eye on God always, because things will pull you away. So the covenant was broken. And what, what does God do? Does he say that's it? You guys had a chance? I'm done? What does he say? Does he seek damages? What does he do? Moses goes off and asks, hey, they screwed up. Can you still let us right. stand here? Now, he, Moses, notice this, goes up to God and pleads and prays for the people to be given, to, uh, to be forgiven. He is the priest. He acts like the priest. And that's what the priests do in the Orthodox Church in the altar. We're praying for the people and for our own sins and for the failings of the people. We read the liturgy text and liturgy. And of course, God again shows us how merciful, how patient, how long-suffering, how, how loving he is. And he gives them another chance. Over and over and over. Why? Why? Why does God What's, what's God trying to accomplish? Salvation of mankind, which will happen through Christ. And remember, remember the prophecy, right? Of Isaiah, the virgin, remember that? How will the virgin, someone who will bear God, how can she be born out of a people that's like this? How can something holy come out of a situation like this? Someone as holy as the Virgin Mary became. How can she be born? Clearly, it's not, not going to happen. People are not ready. People 
are not serious yet. And so, years and years go by, decades, centuries even, until, until the people become closer and closer to God, devote themselves more and more and more, that more and more righteous people begin to be uh, part of this people, of the Israelites. And from them, you'll see now the prophets and the other righteous figures of the Old Testament and the righteous uh, men and women that you read about in the Bible in the Old Testament, many of them. So you see, God's plan of salvation has to move forward, and he's very patient. You can't force anybody. He has to let it work. He keeps sending prophets, and he keeps uh, his covenant with the people. He, he keeps his side of the covenant, right? Even though they keep breaking the contract, he's keeping it. And finally, um, we we see that that these commandments were a what Saint Paul later calls a teacher. These commandments were meant to teach the people. They were meant to be a guardian. It's like, this is what I want you to do. If you do this, then you are my people and I will protect you. If you don't, I will remove my protection and you will be, you will suffer. So this is happening over and over. And then finally he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. A new covenant. And this new covenant is something that they cannot imagine. He says, the covenant I'm going to make with you, that I want to give to you, what I want to give to you now, now that you've received the promised land, you've settled in this place, because that's what eventually happens. You have your earthly kingdom. This is not all I have in mind for you. Because you were the chosen people out of whom will come the Messiah. But there's a greater plan that I need to begin that has to do with saving not only you as the Jews, but all of mankind, all of creation. And what I wanna give is not just this earthly kingdom with milk and honey and whatever, you know, earthly wealth and power, I want to give you something you can't even imagine that I want to give you, that you could never even expect or think that I could give you, and that is the heavenly kingdom. So therein lies the first issue, is that the Jews never could have imagined that this is what God wanted to give them. They thought, that's it. We are the chosen people. We've been given the kingdom. And we are here in the promised land, Judea, right? Jerusalem, all that region. They were done. They thought this faith is for us. Everyone else, we don't know about. But we we're the promised, we are the chosen people. This is our faith. This is our God. This is where we worship. They had never thought that somehow there was a larger purpose that God had. But that's exactly what the new covenant was. Questions, let me stop there.
Father? Yeah, I was wondering if you could just talk about the, uh, I mean, the, uh, you know, with Moses um, ordering the Levites to kill like a third of his own people, brothers and sons, I mean, it's just, I'm not sure how that fits into. When, when God directs, when Moses directs that the, the violators be killed, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like, a, yeah, just address that. Yeah, um, I think the, I think in the book he says, and I, ha I have to reread the passage. I didn't read the entire passage. Um, it says, uh, it says, so, if anybody remembers that, Margaret, do you remember that passage? What happens? Well, I thought it was, I, I thought it was for ho like holy zeal. It's like cleansing. It's like the cleansing of the, um, like have your passion for God, the holiness of God be honored. Even if you needed to kill your like people, you would know like your cousins and dad, but they would, they would have been in the middle of like fornicating or they, I mean, they were doing debauch. They were doing bad things when they were killed. It was, um, so it was like zeal for the Lord. I think what, what Arthur is saying, well, like if the commandment is saying thou shalt not kill. And now Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees this debauchery that's right in front of him, the people worshiping an object and completely losing, completely under this demonic influence He's filled with this, you know, like you said, zeal or this anger, having been in the presence of God, having been in the presence of holiness. He sees that these people are completely possessed by the devil. And in a sense, they are beyond almost redemption because they've given themselves willingly to this, having just encountered God himself. I think that's why he acts the way he acts. And he says, I have to stamp out this and there has to be a kind of punishment here so that the people understand this cannot happen again. So the punishment is severe, uh, but it is necessary. Uh, so we can might look at it in sort of an ethical lens and say, well, how could he kill somebody, right? Um, and I think that's that's a valid question. But what what's the purpose behind it was to stamp out evil from among these people that God is trying to purify. And cannot really uh, put a qualification or judgment on this, right? We cannot judge Moses or judge God. That would be something I cannot do. I would be way out of line. We can discuss this as something that happened, but I cannot say, you know, that this was right or wrong. 
We cannot make that judgment because then we are sort of judging God or judging Moses. Right. I think it came from God to do that because later on they were the Levites were praised. I mean, we only know what we, yeah, we can't judge the event except that they were then called upon, set apart by God to become the priests. So yeah. like God actually, it, they were cursed, Levites were cursed to be scattered because of what they did during a long time ago with Jacob, mm -hmm. yeah, the slaughter, the Anyways, like long time ago, they did, they were really violent and, and killed some people while they were in Shechem. Mm -hmm. So they were cursed by Jacob, the father, Israel said, you got, you will be, you know, like Simeon and Levites were cursed by, by God. I mean, by, I mean, the prophets prophetically, but God took that it still stood that they were separated, they would be scattered, but then it became that they were scattered among the tribes and they became the teachers of the law. Mm -hmm. Like it turned into a blessing that every, they didn't have their own land, but they were gonna be dispersed among the tribes to be a blessing because they got the priest. So in that way, we know that the cleansing was like, was approved by God, like, mm -hmm for his purposes and again like we we don't judge but it's but there was a um there was a it, there was a praise for uh, yeah there was a reason uh a purpose to it uh, it wasn't i don't think it was like moses acting out of just violence um and in a sort of um, impulsive way but i think he felt that this was necessary and again i cannot put myself in his shoes and we don't know also what was happening in the whole context, right? The Bible just gives us a few verses. Perhaps those same individuals were fighting against Moses. Perhaps they were killing others. Perhaps they were uh, attacking those who were trying to stay with Moses and, and the true God. It says that it's almost like a little civil war broke out, right? Yeah, Joshua? I was just going to say, uh, this is from when I saw it, it's on the spot And then, as you see, the Sodom and Gomorrah was not an act directly. Even later, once the Israelites are in the promised land, where he specifically says, you know, wipe out this people. Mm -hmm. But it's only sort of like specific tribe beneficial everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of only those people who are engaging in like direct demonic activity, like passing children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at least I saw like it's the same sort of thing where once it's a like spiritual element to it, that's what got that to people. Right. This needs to be like these practices need to be wiped out. Needs to be wiped out. Whatever was happening in these other cultures or peoples, that's human sacrifices, that debauchery. And God has done that before, this cleansing, right, with the flood. When I don't think we can imagine the, the, the level of the depravity that must have existed at this point. You know, we think, we think things are bad now. It was at a whole other level during, during these years, during this time. I don't think we can imagine how bad um, it was. So, yeah. Also, um, 
Leviticus outlines, at least how I see it, is that Leviticus outlines a lot of what should be done to people who do certain things, and mm -hmm. a lot of idol worship is the execution stoning. Yeah, so, so there's the execution, the stoning, but all kinds of things that 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 that, that are mentioned in Levit Leviticus, right? Yeah, which were kind of which were also brought, brought given to from God, so, which were also commanded by God. Yeah. So now, and this is where I think as Christians we have this dilemma, right? Because we try to now reconcile this these things in the Old Testament. Uh, with a God that's very different that we believe in now. How is that the case? How can that be? So, in other words, you know, here you have what is perceived by outsiders sometimes as a sort of angry, wrathful, punishing God, right? And then you're trying to, you try to reconcile that with Jesus Christ, who reveals God as loving, compassionate, and forgiving, and proves that by being crucified on the cross for the sins of the world. Two, two very different streams, right? And for us as Orthodox, for you as Orthodox, future Orthodox, we read everything, we perceive everything, we understand everything, through the cross, through the resurrection, through the incarnation. That's our lens. We start there and look backwards. We don't start in the back in the history and then try to make sense of Christ. No, we always start with Christ because it is the ultimate answer, right? If you're gonna say God is angry and vengeful, well then tell me about the cross. How do you explain that? See? So that's why we start with the cross. And we look at the history that, that we read like this and that can be shocking and kind of like makes you wonder. It puts it in another perspective. It gives it somehow, I don't know. It doesn't like justify anything. I don't think we're looking for justification. We're not looking for answers. We're not looking for like a why because it's, it's, a, um, it's an event that occurred that's been recorded. So, but we begin with as Orthodox with the cross, with God's love on the cross for us, taking our sins, and then we look everything through that lens, if that makes sense. Okay. All right, everyone, it's about eight o'clock. Uh, I didn't get as far as I wanted to, but I think, um, we're supposed to read through 144, uh, 141, I believe. Um, let me just, uh, any questions? Yeah. Kind of just a question just about, when they were talking about the Sabbath, and yeah. the Lord's Day, or Sunday becoming the Sabbath, they also refer to it as the eighth day. The eighth day. Which I, can you elaborate on Yeah, that? the eighth day. It's a beautiful, uh, um, term that we have in the church the eighth day is is a uh, is sort of a, a uncreated and endless day every day will end right you have it's morning it's night sun goes up sun goes down and that's how we count all our days now 
Saturday through Friday, Sunday through Saturday. The eighth day is the Lord's day and Sunday represents the eighth day. The eighth day is the one that will never end. And it represents the kingdom of heaven. It is Christ, it is eternity. And because Christ is risen from the dead, he has completely overturned all natural order and established a new day, an eternal life, an eternal day where death does not exist. But because he is eternal, anyone in his presence will also be eternal. And that's the kingdom of heaven. And it's the eighth day. So the eighth day that will never, never set. That's the idea. Yeah. Any other questions? So um, we have a beautiful little analogy on page 114 where he begins to talk about the covenant, the new covenant as being, uh, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more next time, but the covenant being the kingdom of heaven that God wants to give to human beings and that the kingdom of heaven is Jesus Christ himself. He says, I will uh, establish a new covenant and it's in his blood. It's no longer a contract and an agreement. I'm gonna do this and you're gonna do that. The new covenant is something very different. It is Christ's body, his blood and our repentance, that's the contract. That's the meeting. Christ gives himself for our salvation, for our sins. He gives himself to us and our job is repentance. Preparing ourselves constantly to receive him, to receive what he's giving, okay? If we're not repenting, we cannot receive him. And so repentance is the way to the kingdom. And that's why the very first recorded words of Christ, if you read in, uh, in Matthew, what does he say? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am, I, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ is the kingdom of heaven. I is here. Repent so that I may be joined to you that you may be joined to me and you may, may have life. So this repentance is the whole purpose of the Orthodox life, the spiritual life. And the book uses this beautiful analogy of a garden. He says, uh, how do I begin to claim this kingdom? Where do I begin? He says, it's in your heart, right? Your heart. And your heart has to become like this garden where you begin to cultivate love for God and repentance. But you gotta start small, he says. Get a small plot. Don't buy 40 acres and you think you're gonna handle that. And that's a beautiful metaphor because why? He says, when you're first starting the spiritual life, be humble, start small. Don't try to become like St. Anthony. Be humble, 
Start with simple childlike prayers and faith towards God. Be obedient to a, to the church, to the, you know, and and be guided little by little. Don't overestimate your abilities. Then he says, in this plot, you have to clear away all the weeds and all the stuff that's there. We have to do that to our hearts. We have to make room for Christ. We have to clear away the weeds of lies, of idols, of sins, of other things that are choking the heart, keeping it from loving God only or fully or more. Uh, and he says, you have to be careful because once you start planting something, what's going to happen? Well, the squirrels and the cats and the birds are going to come and they're going to steal it. They're going to steal it. You guys have a garden, you know, the squirrels will come and they'll eat stuff. Uh, or the birds it says you have to protect what you planted there. In other words, the, the gifts that God gives us, the, the grace, uh, the encounters with God, the love for God, you have to hold on to that, protect it. Don't let the devil and the demons steal it from you. Anyway, so it's a beautiful metaphor, really, for the spiritual life, as you guys are all beginning it and have begun it. Uh, to keep cultivating the heart, the love for God, uh, which is the greatest commandment. We'll stop there. I think that's good for today. Any other questions, comments? We'll continue more next time. Yeah, nothing? Anybody? Yeah. When you do look at it from the left of the cross, through the cross, that like, all the strictness of Leviticus and onwards, like that's what was allowed Joshua, which then allowed the judges to have, and then Prophet Samuel, David's element, Saul, and David. So it's like, yeah, having that 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 structure is what allowed the society to be built, which allowed it to be cleansed mm -hmm. and to right. be people. And so yeah, that's it's, right. It is interesting to think about because it does sound like two different kinds of personalities, but it's it's still the same one. It's still the same God. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was it, it, it's a it's a plan of salvation that God has put in motion, and it's a war, right? Yeah, it's a war. The devil has attacked Adam and Eve and has wounded them, and humanity is wounded. And God's trying to save it. And as he's trying to save it, he's sending prophets, he's sending miracles, and it keeps getting attacked. And what does he have to do? He has to defend his people. And sometimes that involves cleansing of those that are attacking that. Because he's still waiting for the Holy Virgin that will be born. And how can she be born in this kind of filth? It has to be a generation of righteous people that love God, that are obedient to him. From them, the righteous Joachim and Anna is born the Holy Virgin. See? It's the same thing with us today. How can we be Christians in the world unless we have righteousness in our own families? How can we say we are Orthodox? How can we say we're Christians? We're not living the Christian life. No one's going to take us seriously. No one's going to take Christianity seriously because they're not seeing it in us. 
See, it's the same thing. So that's why we have a covenant with Christ and um, it's the, the fathers call it synergy, synergia. We do our part, God does his. If we stop, then he can do nothing for us because we're not uh, able to receive it. Uh, so the responsibility is great. Having now received Christ himself, having received his, his the greatest thing, the kingdom of heaven is given to us. We are like the Israelites and we have to, we, we have to be the new people of God who truly respond to the gift he's given us, this covenant. It's very serious. Yeah, Margaret. I, I just want to add that um, the kind of violence that we see in the Old Testament and because through Christ's example um, that we now understand that we, we actually aren't going to be violent towards other people, but we're going to be violent in terms of cleansing, like really getting serious about um, being pure and holy. So, you know, it's sort of like we need to eradicate like what we see, how bad it is. It's since the kingdom is inside of us, it's that, that's what we go in, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then it's, it's Christ purity that anyway, I was, just saying that it's turned inward we're supposed to surrender it's like a um yeah so yeah it's a different father i've heard that i've heard that some uh, at least some of the fathers of the church uh take these stories, <coughs> take these stories allegorically uh as the as spiritual warfare and they and they don't take it literally or is it is that true uh uh, Arthur's asking that some fathers take these stories allegorically in terms of, uh, you know, I have to look at, and that's true. I, I don't know if that applies to the historical books like Exodus, um, which again is, you know, were written by the Jews themselves, right? Uh, and describing the events that they experienced. I'm not sure which fathers say that, that those stories of Moses and Israelites were allegorical. I don't think they were referring to those. I think they were probably referring to Genesis and uh, the creation account, but I might be wrong. If you could point me to one. Um, yeah, Joshua, you have yep. Well, uh, I just know that uh, St. Paul, I think, in Hebrews talks about uh, Hagar and Sarah, he uses them as an allegory. He uses Hagar and Sarah as like a historical Yeah. In sort of the collective memory of the Jews, right? They, they had these stories of the patriarchs, of the uh, events in the Old Testament. Um, and there, what's interesting also is it sort of like their interpretation of God, their image of God um, is represented here because they see him as someone who will punish them if they go out of line, right? And that's what you read here. Um, and now, again, looking at it through the cross, through the, through the lens of, of Christ and him dying for us, him taking on violence upon himself, not dishing it out upon others, but receiving it upon himself in the most unimaginable, painful way. 
what is that? How do you know? I know where you're going with this, Arthur, and I know sort of the dilemma that you're pointing out. Um, and I don't know if there's an answer, to be honest with you. I don't think we're glorifying violence or justifying it. I think we're recognizing it in the larger scope that somehow God found that necessary. Um, and we, we cannot really pass, I can't pass judgment on that. It just is it's based on what the scriptures say. Um, but again, I, we're convicted by what God's final act, which is the cross and the ascension and the second coming and the kingdom of heaven that he wants to give. So, so that's what I'm convicted by now. That, that is his final act. Whereas in the past, you have record of these other acts that are troubling and, and make us wonder. Uh, but again, we start with the cross. Yeah. Uh, pointing out that historically we don't really have a full appreciation of what people were like at this time. People were violent. I mean, it, it was it was a totally different, I think, understanding. It was lawlessness in many regards, in much regard. And I think, yes, as in, in terms of our Christian understanding, sort of 2020 vision backwards, we can spiritualize things and read things in this spiritualized way like Augustine does with those stories because we are now seeing again things through the cross and through the new covenant, through truth and through grace that has come. The law was given through Moses, the law. The law has either followed or there's punishment, right? But what does he say? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is forgiveness, it is mercy, it is love, it is patience, it is understanding. It is the Holy Spirit. See, that's God's new covenant. But the law was a guardian. It was a teacher. It was necessary. And those who didn't follow the law were punished. Just like you and I will get punished if we don't follow the law in this country, right? There's punishment. We can't weasel our way out of it. Um, this is what we're seeing here in the Old Testament. And it's, it is, it's, it's, it's hard it's hard to read and it's hard to uh, wrap your mind around, but I think 
we have to be careful not to make conclusions about God and about uh, the purpose of it. Anything else? Um, just wanted, yeah. just to add that if we looked at it from God's perspective, actually none of none of the Israelites should have lived. I mean, not even Moses. He murdered someone, mm. and God still used him. So, if you go to the bottom where all deserved to die, but it's mm. actually God's, you know, loving His plan. He has a plan in place. He has He's He's bringing in salvation for the whole world. And in that instant in his history, he had to act in that manner, like you said, a physical, you know, kingdom, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. promised land, not yet introduced the heavenly kingdom. Spiritual. Same right. way, I think if we see that we all deserve to die, then then the violence is not as much, it's just not, you know, it's not about fair or not fair because it's actually not fair that any of us live based on how right. we are, if we, if we yeah. really looked inside our hearts. Right, that's why we're so dependent on God's mercy. Uh, and what you're pointing out is a spiritual truth that we are in need of God's mercy even today. And we can never take it for granted. We can never take salvation for granted. And with the Orthodox understanding, you can lose your salvation. Very serious point. You can lose your salvation, according to the Orthodox teaching. Uh, because God is righteous and right. And we have to continue our, our part of the covenant. Um, and God desires to save us. This is what he wants to do. We're not trying to convince him of that. But... The book uses the relationship of a husband and a wife. The wife remains faithful to the husband. And it's a relationship. Trust and mutual obedience and love. Uh, and then the relationship is it thrives and is, they are truly one. So we have to be like that bride of God and be faithful to him, obedient to him, loyal to him. And if we stray... He will, he will welcome us back if we come back and re repent. Um, but if we stray and die and have not repented, then we've lost our salvation. See? So that's why every day is, is an opportunity to repent and to get closer to God. Because if we die unrepentant, we die in a, having lived a sinful life, then we've lost an opportunity for salvation, even if we're orthodox or whatever you are. So it's very serious uh, to be in a state of repentance, always with Christ, uh, receiving his mercy, putting myself, orienting myself towards his light so that I can be sanctified and saved. And our, my behavior has to show that. I'm a Christian and I believe all these things that I were talking about, I believe them, my behavior has to reflect that. Otherwise, I'm two people. I say one thing, I do another. I believe one thing and I do another. That's not Christianity. See? Behavior is very important. That's how we show who we really are as Christians. So, and that's what the Jews weren't doing. 
They were saying they believe in God, but their behavior was not. And he says, these people are in me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's why he said that. So this is all, this whole story, all of this, the Jews, everything we're reading, all of it is to teach us as Christians as well, what to watch out for and what we should be like. And of course, what's interesting is the old, in the Old Testament, you have the, the Ten Commandments, right? What not to do. And now, in the final chapters of our reading that we're up, up to page 141, what do you read? The Beatitudes and Christ giving his commandments, not of what not to do, but of what to do. What to, to do. What does he say? Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, on and on. See, it's no longer what not to do, it's what to do, behavior, action. So read those please, um, and because uh, each one of those has a beautiful description of what these Beatitudes mean. Anyone else before we conclude? Sorry, we didn't get a chance to take a break, but um, thank you for everyone for your attention and great comments. Any final questions or comments? The seriousness of it makes it hard to, you know, not go after like the 48 years and to pace ourselves. Yeah. And because we kind of have to reconcile that like our first or like the path. Yeah. I think it's good to have that zeal and to uh, have that uh, desire to grow spiritually. Um, but uh, humility is the most important thing. Humility that says, I can do nothing. I'm everything that, that I will happen to me spiritually in my growth is gonna come from God. And it's gonna be a gift from him. Uh, and all I, I, the only reason why I'm doing is this because I love him. Not to get a reward, not to escape hell, not to, you know, get into heaven. Every prayer, every prostration, every fasting, every time I go to liturgy, everything is just because I love Jesus Christ. That's why I'm doing this. See, that keeps me humble because it's a relationship. It's not a uh, system or program, right? It's a relationship. And a relationship involves love and knowing one another. So that keeps us humble and keeps us sincere and doing it for the right reasons. And you see these monks who are in, in the caves and they're dedicating their whole life. It's because of love for God. They, been wounded by his love, as the psalmist says. They've felt God's love and they just want to give it back. And they do that with their vigils and their prayers and severe asceticism that most of us cannot handle and we shouldn't try to do. That's the point. But um, we can begin slowly, slowly building it up. Uh, but all of you as beginners have to start slow. And then you can turn up the heat 
it can turn up the notch in conversation with the spiritual father and according to the uh, to the uh, life of the church, right? The church says, here's 40 days, no meat, no dairy, no oil. Can you do that? That's hard. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's hard, right? Uh, and a lot of people can't do it, see? So the church does give us lots of opportunities to have a big plot for 40 acres. Uh, but even those we have to start slowly with. Those were in my mind when I said what I said. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a journey. It's a journey. Okay. Thank you, everybody. God bless you. Thanks, everyone at home. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye.